Today's reading can be found on page 1233 of the Church Bibles. It's Jude, uh, the whole chapter, letter. Page 1233, starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke ye. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all, by, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favouritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, 
Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laura. Do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to the end this morning. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would your word be to us this morning a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Would your testimonies be the joy of our hearts? And would you incline our hearts to perform your statutes forever to the end? For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. How do we contend for the faith? That may be a very obscure question to you, particularly if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. You may not have arrived thinking, I do hope before I leave the building this morning, someone will have told me how to contend for the faith. Um, But it's the obvious question for anyone who has been looking at the the, the first 16 verses of this letter from Jesus' brother Jude, as we've been doing over the last two weeks at St. John's and we'll finish doing this morning. Jude opens his letter with a command to his readers to contend for the faith. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, of course, that's what Christians love to talk about, uh, but instead I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And why do Jude's readers need to contend for that original authentic faith? Well, verse 4, um, 4 Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude's readers need to contend for that original authentic faith because there is an alternative perversion of that message doing the rounds. Grace is not a bad one-word summary of the true Christian message. God generously, freely, uh, under no obligation, gives to those who trust in Jesus forgiveness for their sins and all the blessings that come from being his people. Nothing we can do to earn it, and nothing we can do after the event to top it up, and nothing we can do to become more deserving of it. Amazing that grace, isn't it? The perversion of that message of grace is to say, well, if I don't get saved by anything that I do, then maybe God doesn't mind what I do. Indeed, he's so gracious and inclusive and accepting that he'd never tell me to do anything that I didn't want to do or to stop doing anything that I do want to do. And people use this reasoning to justify all sorts of behavior, pride, greed, anger, The love of money, it's no biggie. Um, God accepts me just as I am. 
But the place this perversion of grace shows up most clearly, both in Jude's day and in ours, is in the realm of sexual ethics. I don't know exactly what behaviours these ungodly people are justifying, but Jude summarises it um, in verse 4 with the word sensuality, um, which, to be clear, is not about soft furnishings or a particularly melt-in-your-mouth chocolate brownie. Um, It is about sex. Um, Verse 7, sexual immorality. Verse 8, they defile the flesh. The problem is that God does care uh, very much about what we do in every area of life, both for our good and for his glory. And for Christians, Jesus is our gracious saviour, yes. But look at the end of verse 4. He is also our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These false teachers who preach an anything-goes sexual ethic... They may claim to be embracing Jesus Christ as their saviour, but they are denying him as their Lord who gets to call the shots in their lives, every bit as much in the bedroom as in the church. And you can't have Jesus as your saviour if you deny him as your Lord. I'm a conflict avoider by personality type, the sort of person who apologises when someone else bumps into me. Um, And I'm always tempted to say, sure, there are false gospels out there, but can't we all just get along? I'm a bit more listening, a bit more flexibility, a bit more agreeing to disagree. No, um, says Jude, uh, you need to contend. And if his readers needed to contend, then presumably so do we, because that false gospel of grace perverted into sensuality is no less prevalent today than it was then. But how? Um, How do we contend for the faith? Maybe that language throws up images of, you know, jihadi-style training camps or something, or aggressive debates of underhand political manoeuvrings in general synod, of online slagging matches. You might be secretly rather drawn to that, um, or you might recoil from it. Either way, you will see that that is not at all what Jude means by contending. But it will require effort. And you might think if the Christian life is one of contending, just not sure I can do it. Uh, Maybe you're not yet following Jesus and you think, why would I get into this? I've got enough on my plate fighting for a seat on the train every morning. Why would I embrace a faith that needs contending for? Uh, I think we'll see that Jude thinks it is both eminently possible Um, and eminently worthwhile, a matter of eternal life and eternal death, that we contend for the faith. We must contend. We can contend. For the last few paragraphs, Jude has been describing these false teachers, these people, as he keeps calling them. But now in verse 17, he shifts focus. Um, But you, he's back to addressing his beloved Uh, readers directly as he did in uh, verse 3. That's them, but what about you? Um, How are we to contend? Four directions for us to look in. First of all, look backwards. Remember the predictions. Verses 17 to 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. We must remember 
That division between people who call themselves Christians is inevitable. And there is, of course, a place for listening, for flexibility, for agreeing to disagree on many issues. But don't be so naive as to think that that has the power to bring about cosy worldwide Christian unity. And from the very beginning, along with their message that Jesus Christ is Saviour and Lord, the authoritative apostles proclaimed that there would be scoffers, um, not people who eat their dinner too quickly, but people who do not take the authentic faith seriously. They call themselves Christians. And remember from verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. This is not Richard Dawkins scoffing at the Christian faith from the outside. And these are insiders who in many ways look like the genuine article. But beneath the surface, they aren't. They aren't following Jesus. They are following their own ungodly passions. They are of this world, not the world to come. And they don't have the spirit living in them, as every true Christian does. And we must be clear that it is these who cause divisions. Bible-believing Christians are always being accused of being divisive by insisting that only biblical doctrine and practice is legitimate. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformers are always being accused of divisiveness as institutionally a great split developed between them and those loyal to Rome. But the reformers were just promoting the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, The Bible's teaching that we're saved by grace alone and not by anything that we do. They hadn't moved anywhere. It was their opponents who had moved by insisting on this new and unbiblical message that we're saved by a combination of God's grace and human works. It was these who caused the division, not the reformers. And when people throw around charges of divisiveness today, ask yourself, well, who has moved? Um, Who is holding on to the original, authentic faith? And who is promoting an alternative, new message? Because it is always the innovators who have caused the division, even though it's often those who are loyal to God's word who are obliged to leave the institution. The ongoing existence of scoffers causing division was part of the message of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning. On the one hand, this means we need to steal our spines. Um, Contending for the faith will always be necessary. Listening, flexibility, agreeing to disagree, there will never be a substitute for contending. On the other hand, this means that when we find ourselves having to contend, it doesn't mean that we've gone wrong. In fact, we're even better off than Jude's readers were. We have 2,000 years of extra evidence that the apostles' predictions were right. Um, When we see people continuing to creep into the church, perverting the grace of God into sensuality, and so causing divisions as they always have, it ought to give us extra confidence in the rest of the apostles' message. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that we find in the Bible, that really is true. It needs no doctrinal or ethical updates. How are we to contend for the faith? Well, first of all, um, look backward. Remember the predictions of the apostles. 
Second, look inward. Keep yourselves. This is such a helpful correction if we see contending primarily as a matter of taking on the people that we disagree with. Jude starts closer to home. And before you worry about these people, what about yourself? Uh, Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And the central command here is the beginning of verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, You might be thinking that is an odd expression. Um, It sounds like he's saying there's something I can do to make God love me. That doesn't sit very well with the idea that we're saved by grace alone. But look back with me to the very first verse of this letter. Uh, Jude has already described his readers as to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Um, The status of every believer is in fact secure. Um, God loves us. He will keep us. That isn't in doubt, because it is ultimately his work, all his work. But that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. God uses human means to achieve his divine ends. Indeed, the way that God keeps us is by growing us in our faith, our hope, our love, and we have a responsibility, a duty, to strive for that spiritual growth. It's going to look like three things. First, verse 20, um, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Um, The faith in this letter is essentially the gospel message, as in verse 3, the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. It's on that foundation that the Christians to build themselves up, that and we as a church are to build ourselves up. And we find that faith in the Bible. I mean, it's a most holy faith. The religion of false teachers does not promote holiness, uh, but the religion of the Bible most certainly does. So what are you going to do this week um, to get to know your Bible better? And what are you going to do this week to help someone else at St. John's get to know their Bible better? Contending for the gospel means keeping yourselves in God's love. And that means, first of all, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. That is a responsibility for all of us. Here's your weekly quote from uh, the 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle. Um, Let us read our Bibles and be armed with scriptural arguments. A Bible-reading laity is a nation's surest defence against error. I have no fear for English Protestantism if the laity will only do their duty. By laity, Ra means all of us, uh, not just the sort of professional Christians. This morning, as I stand here, I am encouraged by one particular sound. Um, It is this sound. See if I can... It's that sound. For those on the tape, that is the sound of a Bible page turning. It's annoying that they've decided to print this short letter across two pages of our church Bibles, but on the plus side, it means that every time I've referred to a verse at the beginning of the book, I've got to hear a whole room full of people turning the pages of their Bible. I take it to check that what I am saying really is what God is saying in his word. And that is the sound of the laity doing their duty. I hope you'll bring your questions on Jude to question time this evening for Tom to answer, obviously not me. And we all have a part to play 
in ensuring that the truth is proclaimed here at St John's so that we might build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And will St John's be a church that contends for the faith? As long as we are a church that sounds like this, I have some reason to think we'll be okay. Keeping ourselves in God's love will mean building ourselves up in our most holy faith. More briefly, at the end of verse 20, it will mean praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not a particular type of prayer, praying in tongues or something. Um, Ephesians 6.18 talks about praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication, all Christian prayer is prayer in the Spirit. Um, These false teachers are devoid of the Spirit, but Christians have the Spirit. That is precisely um, why we are able to pray to God as our Father. And prayer is the first expression of a Christian's dependence on God, of a church's dependence on God. If we want to keep ourselves in the love of God and so contend, we must give ourselves to prayer. And will St. John's be a church that contends for the faith? And for as long as we are a church with a well-attended, well-engaged monthly prayer meeting, have some reason to think we'll be okay. Wednesday evening this week, Eight o'clock in Grosvenor. See you there. Keeping ourselves in God's love will mean, end of verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. One of the features of false religion is that typically it makes much of the here and now. I'm a religion to bring you fulfillment in this life. I'm happiness in this life. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints makes much of waiting Um, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. How are we to contend for the faith? Well, look backward, remember the predictions of the apostles, and then look inward. Before we worry about anyone else, let us strive to keep ourselves in the love of God. And then like they say on the plane, it's, it's having put on our own oxygen mask that we might be in a position to help our fellow travellers with their oxygen masks. And so third, look outward, show mercy. Jude seems to have in mind here three sort of possibly overlapping categories of people from those just on the edges of being affected by this false teaching and through to those right at the heart of it. Here's how we're to deal with the first two uh, groups of people. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. I'm having just talked about the mercy that the Lord Jesus Christ will show to us on the last day. Jude now says that extending that same mercy is at the heart of what it means to contend with others. Back in verse 5, Jude said that Jesus saved a people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Now he says in verse 23 that Jesus may use us to save people by snatching them out of uh, the fire. False teaching that perverts the grace of God into sensuality is a lie that sends people into the eternal fires of hell. But God may use us in some situations to avert that catastrophe. Jude isn't very specific about how we might extend Jesus' mercy to those who doubt, about how we might save others by snatching them out of the fire. Surely it will will involve prayer, and we must pray for our desperately confused denomination. 
And we must pray for our friends, for family members who profess to follow Christ but are confused on issues of sexual ethics, for example. And where we have relationships that make it appropriate to engage more directly, and we must remember that God changes people's minds and hearts and wills by the power of his Holy Spirit, through his Holy Word. And the force of my arguments, of my personality, will never win anyone back. And But God can if we will point them to the Bible. Perhaps a good question for each of us is, if I were to start to edge towards the fire, uh, who would try to snatch me back to safety? Do I have Christian friends who know me well enough, who know my doubts? Have I given my Christian friends permission to ask me awkward questions about my life, to point me to the truth of the Bible if they think I'm going off um, piste? We contend with false teaching because Jesus is merciful. Believers in Jesus will be spared the judgment that we deserve and instead ushered into eternal life on the last day. And perhaps Jesus will use us to extend that mercy to others, to save others currently caught up in the wickedness of false teaching. But in approaching the fire to snatch people away, we must beware of getting burned ourselves. I I think that is the idea behind this third instruction at the end of verse 23. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And there are people we will not be able to help. I'm still to have an attitude of mercy towards such people, recognising that judgment is God's job, not mine. But that mercy will be mixed with fear. Uh, The garment stained by the flesh is an image drawn from Zechariah chapter 3. That, in short, is a a graphic way of talking about sin. And there is an old saying that we should love the sinner but hate the sin. I think that's basically quite helpful. Um, As long as we realise that loving some sinners may mean steering clear of them. Uh, One writer says this, Believers are to beware lest their mercy is transposed into acceptance and they themselves become defiled by the sin of those they are trying to help. Contending for the faith may well involve some of us in some contexts engaging with those caught up in false teaching. But this is hardly jihad. This is hardly aggressive, underhand. God preserve us from a love of confrontation, from a desire to prove ourselves right and others wrong. And God give us instead his heart of mercy for those who, just like us, deserve his judgment. How are we to contend? Look backward. Uh, Remember the predictions. Look inward. Keep yourselves. Look outward. Show mercy. Fourth look upward. God will keep us. This letter ends with one of the most wonderful expressions of praise in the New Testament. You may have heard people use it to close one of our meetings and not known where it comes from. Well, now you do. Um, If Jude had been allowed to write this letter about our common salvation as he'd wanted to, you get a sense from this bit of just how upbeat it would have been. And it's a great way to finish a letter that in some ways is quite dark, And Jude doesn't want to leave us thinking about the filth of the people of this world. 
Um, he wants to leave us thinking about the glory of God. He doesn't want to leave us with a list of things we need to do. He wants to leave us with a great statement of what God will do for us. He doesn't want to leave us worried, but confident. And so he writes this, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We have a responsibility to keep ourselves in God's love. But if we obey that command, it's because, as at the beginning of the letter, God is keeping us. It's not exactly the same word here, but it's the same idea. Um, He will keep us from stumbling, not not from sinning, but from falling away from the faith. And a lifetime of contending for the faith will not prove too much for the believer. On the last day, we will stand before the presence of God, blameless. This is the language of Old Testament sacrifices. Under the sacrificial system, a sinner like me can't enter into the presence of God uh, safely. So I have to choose a blemish-free lamb to be burnt to smoke and so ascend into the presence of God instead of me. But because of what Jesus has done for me in his death and resurrection, I am blameless in status now. And on the last day, I will be made blameless in my actual behaviour and I can stand in his presence. That will be a day of great joy. And so we ascribe to the only God who saves us through his son Jesus, glory, majesty, dominion, authority. This is the God who will keep us. And what could possibly stop him? The false gospel of grace perverted into sensuality is no less prevalent today than it was in Jude's day. So how do we contend for the original, authentic faith? Four directions to look. We're to look backwards and remember the predictions of the apostles. They'd warned us about these people. And this isn't a surprise. We're to look inward and keep ourselves In the love of God, contending starts with me, with us. And we're to look outward, not because we want to pick a fight, but to show to others the mercy that Jesus has shown us. We'll need to steer clear of some, but others we may be able to save. And we're to look upward to our glorious God and Saviour who will keep us from stumbling. Four different directions to look, but really, and there is one more to, to, to rule them all, as it were. And really the answer to contending, uh, the answer to many issues in the Christian life, is to look forward. Um, If we are going to be those who contend for the faith, for the good of the world, of the church, for the glory of God, we need more than anything to set our eyes on the future. Um, Jude says that in every section of our passage. Contend for the faith by looking forward. Verse 18, they said to you, in the last time, We're in the last days before Jesus' return. Look forward. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're just waiting a little longer to be with Jesus in our eternal home. Look forward. 
Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Destruction is just moments away for those who persevere in denying Jesus as Lord. Look forward. Verse 24, and let's close with this, as Jude does. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.